welcome to Choosing Better, conversations about wacky ideas, economics, and the art of living well. Good to see you again, Tim. Enoch, it's so good to see you. Always good. Oh, I can't believe it's been another week. A whole week? A whole week. They fly by. I, I look forward to this, though. You know what I'm looking forward to? I could you guess. <laughs> but what is it? It's that I get to do trivia today. Oh, it is your turn. It is my turn. You ready for a trivia Which question? Which means I'm in the hot seat, and I'll be honest, a little nervous. All right. Well, we'll see how you do. Fire away. All right. In 2017, what was the life expectancy of people born in and living in the U.S.? Domestic born. You can, I have it separated by men and women, so you could do... I feel like I should have a, a good guess at this point, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going embarrass myself. Oh, no, don't worry. Uh, I'm going to guess 78. All right, you got in between men and women, so that's good. Okay. 74.4 for men, 79.5 for women. All right, what that, was... That is a big gap. It's a big gap, yeah. That's concerning. It's the gender me. age gap. Not yeah. the gender age gap, the gender life expectancy gap. That's it. Yeah. All right, so what about foreign-born people living in the U.S.? The oh. same year, 2017, what was their life expectancy? No, that's fascinating. I'm going to guess 75. It was 81.4 years for men. I went the wrong direction. Went wrong direction. And 85.7 years for oh women. It's one goodness. of the biggest gaps of any like single characteristic. It's seven years oh. difference for men and a 6.2 year difference for women. So foreign-born population living in the U.S., has the life expectancy of uh, uh, roughly equivalent to some of the top longest living nations in the world. Oh, I'm so glad I asked this question. Not, see, not, I don't want to talk about like selection effects. It, isn't it so fascinating? Well, because it's, it's a non-random group. It's a non-random group, Because it's yeah. those who are foreign born. So I mean, it's yeah. not the children foreign born. It's those who somehow either of their own account or their parents' account chose to move to the United States. So it's a scary thing to do. They had a lot of, yeah. uh, a lot of willingness to take a significant risk, but risk taking in this case didn't end lead at least on average to a shorter life. So fascinating, isn't it? When I think about it, I think I actually probably should have guessed the other side because of the, of the non-random sorting that's going on. A certain type of person chooses to move, yeah. which is itself like a, a a variable of interest. Variable of interest. Actually, it reminds me of a, a study that was done on uh, uh, immigrants on average have more upper mobility between their generational upper mobility between the foreign born and their children than a native sure. and his or her children. Sure. They have a bigger, they have a bigger percent gain of income. Right, and you're you're signaling something of genetic makeup, of characteristics, yeah. of yeah. family culture. But the study, but the, the paper I read, they argued that the biggest predictor of it is actually much more simple. It was that if you're foreign born, you chose where you lived. If you're native born, you didn't choose where you live. So, for example, if you live in like, a foreign born person, is very unlikely to live in rural Alabama. I see. So you're not choosing the places that are likely to keep you at a certain socioeconomic status. Well, yeah, in particular, a foreign-born individual, when they look at, when they move to the United States, where are they going to move? They're going to move to a place that has jobs. Yeah. And so just based on pure jobs, they th therefore happen to sort themselves into a place where their kids are more likely to rise. So you're saying it's a choice open to all of us, but foreign-born population had to take, well, they had to make that choice consciously. Yes. The domestic population, it's very easy to stick with the status quo, which is where you currently live. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so... Great, great question. Thank you. Thank I you. I loved it. Great. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. So can I ask you a question? You may. Not trivia. Of course. So we're talking about immigration today. Yeah. An important topic. I think you and I both care a lot about. I, I, I don't know the answer to this. I'm actually curious. Have you ever worked outside the United States and collected a wage from that country? In other words, have you ever had to pay like taxes or income tax in a foreign country? No. I lived for a year in a foreign country. And I received an income, but it was through U.S. support. Oh, okay. 
So, okay, so yeah. you okay, so you've been abroad and lived abroad. Yes, but have not. Okay, so you you didn't have to go through like the visa work to be an employee. Correct. I was the whole time I was on a visitor visa. I had to leave the country every three months. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a classic thing that I think many of our listeners won't be aware of. Sort of some of the things that they do to play the games, if you will, of keeping your visa, especially if you're a visitor. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I worked in the Philippines for two years. Okay. And I worked for an employer in the Philippines. Okay. Who, which I loved, That's and I did not know it until my second year there that they never actually legally filed the, the visa for us. Ooh. So we were always on a tourist visa. Okay. And so without me knowing it, they asked for my passport. And in hindsight, this is probably foolish, but I gave them my passport, my employer. You were young, Tim. I was young, I was young. <laughs> and uh, my employer would send off my passport every six months to be restamped. Okay. Uh, actually, no, every three months. Without you? Without me. Seems confusing, right? Where was it stamped? Or my consent. Uh, <laughs> it was stamped at the immigration office in, in, in Manila. And so I remember one time I went to go travel Southeast Asia with my wife and we asked for passports from her employer and I got my passport and um, almost all my pages were taken out with stamps. I went, well, how'd this happen? And I went, well, we had to keep stamping it. And I said, well, I'm paying social security tax and I'm paying income tax, but yet I don't have the actual employment visa. I'm like, yeah, it's just easier this way. I thought, oh, okay. So I think in theory, I could maybe claim social security credits in the Philippines if I retire there. But probably not because the entire time I was there, I was working illegally. Yeah. Is that anyway? It's a hypothetical question you probably will never resolve. It's a practical <laughs> question, a very specific question. It will probably never resolve. So let's talk about immigration and visas. Yeah, let's talk about it. Is that, that okay? I would love to, yes. All right. But I, I kind of wanted to set the stage yeah. with some like economic ideas or thoughts. So the first one is I'm going to keep going with the trivia. You want, you want more trivia? <laughs> I mean, I, yes, always yes. All right, so I'm pulling this from um, Clemens, and it's a, it's more of a literature review of how much are of what magnitude are the estimates of the gains if all countries were to fully open to trade as a percentage of global GDP. Okay, so you're saying if, if suddenly all barriers to trade went away, mm -hmm. so trades and goods in particular, not services, goods and services, oh, goods and services, mm -hmm. goods and services. So tariffs go away, all forms of protection go away. Correct. How much would, G how, what percent would GDP, global GDP rise? Yeah, and you can give it as a range, or if you guess a number, you'll probably get in the range. Okay, I'm gonna guess it would rise by 5%. Ooh, you are more optimistic than any of the papers. Oh! So the range was 0.3 to 4.1%. I converted these to dollar amounts because I think that's easier for us to think about. Think so, so that's yeah. about $40 to $500 per person, for every person on the planet per year. So it's meaningful, but it's not enormous. So, so if you're an American, you barely feel it. But if you're from Burundi, it's significant. And it's not evenly distributed. So it's not. not every person would feel yeah. this. Some people would feel far more and some people would feel negative effects. That's right. But the average increase, it, it would be significant, but not terribly large. All right. What are the remaining potential gains from fully opening borders to movement of people across okay. them? So free so movement borders. across borders. Mm -hmm. Open borders. And assuming people move to optimize along this dimension, which is... An oh. impossibly large assumption, like That's people- That's a huge assumption. And I think rightly so, value their family, their friendship, their culture that they're familiar with. So yeah. this is not something that's feasibly going to be obtained, Yeah. but a portion of it is feasibly yeah. obtained. I like the idea of people saying, I like where I'm from. It, makes, like me, it makes me happy when someone you says, like, I like where I'm from. You know what, another, oh, I don't know if I, another week you had mentioned, or you've mentioned to me in passing that you love your neighborhood. I do. A big thing is the specific people on your block. Right. So much so that I, it, it makes me not even apply for jobs elsewhere. Even if it might be my economic interest to apply for yeah. jobs elsewhere, I feel like I'm kind of have golden handcuffs. 
There you go. All right, so I'm going to guess. Not, not, not in terms of money, though. No, no. Well, yeah, no, no. Uh, so I'm going to guess GDP would increase if you, if you open borders and you make that assumption that people actually maximize mm -hmm. as they move from low wages to high wages. Uh, I'm going to guess GDP goes up by 50%. This time you were overly pessimistic. Wow. Yeah. Six so my 5% was too high for trade. And yes. 50% 50, 50 was too low for immigration. It is quite a bit larger than a whole order of magnitude bigger. So 67% was the lower bound estimate of papers that try to do this and 147.3% wow. of GDP. So if you convert that to dollars, average global GDP, and, and now I up this to, to 2022, was uh, in between 12 and $13,000 per person per year. So global GDP is in, in that range right now. So if you convert the increase in GDP percentage to dollars, that's an increase of $7,500 to $18,000 per person per year. That's amazing. That's amazing. So basically, yeah. I'm trying to tell us and our listeners and anybody else who's interested that uh, the conversation on immigration of moving to people across borders has far, far more economic significance than conversations of free trade. Like the free trade matters, but we've already realized most of the biggest gains from that. There's still some left to be gained from some more open trade policy if we if you know if yeah. those are desired yeah but the conversation yeah. on immigration is far more important economically and for a lot of other reasons well i mean before we go into the conversation, conversation more fully it's, i i was I a big part of this is not only has inequality across countries grown but also in, in fact the 20th century we already reduced a lot of trade barriers that's right I yeah mean, a committee whereas immigration borders oh my goodness yeah. those are some of the strictest borders that exist when it comes to people, because when people move across borders, um, culture also moves. That's right. And I think yeah, there's a are, lot of non-economic costs, which are extremely important. It's very important for politics. And also, I mean, I think you kind of hinted this earlier with the whole idea when I brought, oh, wow, people's incomes will rise. You said, well, some people and some people lose. I mean, if if these these uh, economic, the, the, the shock of economic growth for immigration is so, so large, then presumably some people actually would, at least in the short run, suffer quite a bit. So, for example, like if you were uh, an individual who uh, competed for like you know low low wage um, income, and all of a sudden everyone moves across borders at once, you, you might find your own income dropping potentially. Well, that's so that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I, on, I guess I'm jumping ahead, aren't I? Well, and it depends on this. You, yeah, but it depends on the <laughs> scope that you're talking about because I think that a lot of people's intuition <laughs> is if we're talking about huge gains, there must be huge losses. Most of the empirical studies don't demonstrate that, at least on like feasible quantities of yeah. migration. So even if uh, if you have a whole lot of people move to the country, the country that's receiving the population are unlikely to see a, enormous changes to their, their cost of labor. They might see the labor go down. The labor, the wages of very similar migrants move down slightly. Yeah. I don't know how much we want to get into this. Are we getting into the weeds too much? We're getting into the weeds. Okay, let's, weeds. let's skip that. I, I, you, you mentioned something else that's really important. Yeah. So in passing, you said not only has the level of inequality across nations increased significantly. I want you to unpack that a bit more. What, what did you mean by that statement? Because it's critically important. Well, I think Adam Smith, he obviously is a huge champion of free trade. You know, he's like, hey, if we lower borders, things will be so much greater. And when you think about it, most people actually, I think you have to almost like wake someone up with this concept that people moving across borders is economically similar to goods moving across borders. It's not, it's not, they're not that dissimilar because they're economic agents, labor, uh, also consumers. Uh, but he barely talks about immigration. Mm -hmm. And I think one of, the bigger, big, one of the biggest reasons is presumably because everyone's low income. 
So if you move from someplace in Central Europe to London, yes, wages are higher in London, but not that much. And so in other words, like the, there is, there's more equality across countries where the median citizen in any given country is probably more or less in a similar position of low income. That's right. So the, the, yeah. the, me, the level of standard of living for the median worker across most nations at the time of the Wealth of Nations being written in the late 1700s yeah. was almost the same. That's right. I mean, it's basically like, why move across borders? I'm poor here, I'll be poor there. Plus, the cost of moving across borders was enormous. Yes. And like, permanent separation from your family, even regards to communication. That's right. So the yeah. social and cultural costs, you permanently, basically, were permanently cut off from, from your family for a very, very long period of time, at the very least. You couldn't go home for Christmas and Easter or whatever breaks you might have. You basically were not going to see them for an indefinite period of time. So things have changed dramatically, but the conversations have continued to keep the relative weighting the same. We, we talk far more about trade than we do about migration, even though mig migration has grown in, in relative importance. The, I, I looked it up. It's about six to seven times more important today, the level of global inequality, uh, than it was when Adam Smith was writing his book. Okay, so, so meaning global inequality or inequality across countries mm -hmm. has increased by six or seven times compared to like 1800. That's right. So if you were the median worker, uh, uh, and you could expect to be the median income worker in the country that you're arriving in, the importance of that change is six to seven times more important for you now yeah. than it was when Adam Smith was writing his book. So now there's enormous gains to be had that weren't there yeah. to be had. And it also gives more demand to even be an immigrant or to migrate, I should say. So exactly. now if all of a sudden you live in a, a lower income country, like I referenced Burundi earlier, uh, for you now, there's potential enormous gains moving across borders. Because also, because right. yeah. your your income's gonna skyrocket. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you can send money back home. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You can remit money back home, and that money can go back home to little siblings, to relatives, to uh, neighbors, and help them uh, possibly go to college or immigrate themselves. Well, this brings yeah. us to the key insight of the conversation we want to have. So we want yeah. to talk about a book that we didn't write. We want to talk about Radical <laughs> Markets, a chapter in Radical Markets, um, by Eric Posner and Glenn Weil, and they have this insight that okay, if there's if there's this quantity of dollars left on the table that could be gained through migration, there must be a way to spread it around such that everybody benefits. So right now, through migration efforts, they argue that the median voter is not in favor of, of immigration. And do you want to oh, explain why yeah. not? Actually, I, so I, I, I love to teach on immigration uh, as part of my job here. And I tell, them, I tell them all, like, things that are interesting are things that vary across countries or maybe across time. So like, well, we look at attitudes changing for various topics, but one of the most fascinating things in political science is uh, when surveyed, that I know of at least, every single country surveyed, the median citizen when asked, do you want more immigrants or less immigrants than you currently have, prefers fewer immigrants. That's wild, because typically things vary across time, like how you view gun control, or how you view the environment, or how you view taxation. These things vary across space, across time. Now granted, I want to be very careful here because just because I said the median citizen prefers fewer immigrants than they currently have, or put differently, they want immigration to not loosen. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge variance across countries and the current immigration policy. So some countries, countries, for example, are pretty strict, like Japan or South Korea, and some are more open, like the United States or Canada. Um, and also that percent too. So maybe in a country of the United States, we might have as, as high as like 45% of people say, yes, loose up immigration. But in Japan, which is already fairly strict, their number might only be 25% or 28%. But that's a pretty wild thing that the typical country 
politically, it seems really, really difficult, at least, to open up immigration. So we have these two conflicting, or these two things that are at odds with one another. So one, there's huge global potential gains from opening borders. People's lives in, in terms of material prosperity could be made significantly better off. Yeah. And second... Both the immigrant and the local economy. Yes, yes. Yeah. The, 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 the gains... Yes. Also, we, we've been using the phrase native. That's we, I should, we should unpack that a little bit. That's econ jargon for the person who's already born in that country. So we say native worker, referring to like in, in the United States, for example, that's a U.S. worker who was born in the U.S., whereas the foreign-born worker is what it sounds like. It's a worker who was born outside the United States. So to make it clear, uh, the gains for immigration are not only for the immigrant, it's also for the native worker and consumer. That's right. So the gains, the gains are spread. There are also costs. And the, the authors are suggesting maybe one of the reasons that we get such consistent results on the median voter preference is that currently the gains are not spread all that far. So they argue that historically the primary gains from migration have accrued to the migrant themselves and their immediate relations and to the companies that hire them. And that those companies are really, at least in U.S. migration policy, that they're the ones that that are that have enough expertise to navigate the systems to capture some of the potential gains that happen when migrants come to the U.S. And so their insight is that man, these gains, these potential gains are enormous. If they were spread more broadly, would it be possible to see more of this benefit, this potential benefit, realized in the U.S. and in other countries? Yeah. Okay. So first off, let's let's make some distinctions because I think when a lot of people say immigration, they have different thoughts in their head. Sure. So some people, when they hear the word immigration, are thinking of refugees. Mm -hmm. And as of right now, at least, we're going to kind of put that off the side. We're going to talk about economic migrants, people who are voluntarily moving across borders for a better um, economic opportunity, which is the majority of immigration in the world today. Um, there is a subset of immigration, which is involuntary migration. For example, war, like Ukraine right now, uh, with Russia and Ukraine, has caused a huge uptick of involuntary migration, in particular women and children, from Ukraine into European states. It's a separate conversation. Although it's related. We're going to talk about it later today. We are. We are. That, we're going to come full circle back to that and how we're seeing some real life implications of what we're going to talk about. But we're talking right now in this conversation about economic migrants, people who are moving across borders for jobs, for better opportunity. And typically, well, at least right now, most countries, including the United States, those to get a visa, to legally move across borders, to be legally allowed to work in the new country, you have to have an employer sponsor you. You have to basically get an employer to fill out the work, the paperwork for you to say, yes, I want to hire this person. So what you're basically saying, Enoch, is that right now the gains from immigration are disproportionately shared but with the employer. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And they're, yeah. they're not distributed more broadly. So the, the perception that, you know, maybe migration helps somebody out there, but it doesn't seem to be helping me. They're saying, you know, that might be true and there might be ways to make it so that more people gain from immigration that allow more of these, this money on the table to be realized yeah. from more of the world. So right now, so say, for example, a medical, well, let's say a, a, biolo a, a biologist who works in the pharmaceutical industry wants to come to the United States and work. He or she has to first be employed by like Pfizer and then Pfizer fills out the visa and then they're allowed to work in the United States. Is this correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I actually have a, a, a pretty interesting example. So my, yeah, my, my grad school roommate was basically in this situation. Um, and he has for a while wanted to work or had, has thought about working as an actuary. And the 
stipulations on his visa give him a certain number of draws. Now, even if he finds a company to sponsor him, there's still a lottery for him to be able to get one of the limited number of spaces in the U.S. Uh, without having come from a specific sort of grad school major or undergrad major, he only has one draw. But if he can go back to school in one of, for one of these majors, he can get three draws. Now, he's already done all of the work. Every single thing that he will learn in this grad program, he's already completed. Now, thankfully, he, he got a situation figured out. But, um, but he was planning at, at one point in time to go back to grad school for a graduate degree that would waste two years of his life but give him no additional understanding or learning in order to get three more draws in order to give him a better shot at getting hired by a, a sponsor company, which is just an insane amount of wasted yes. effort and life. Yes, for, for him and actually collectively, right? Collectively, like we're not benefiting from the work that he would put in. Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, and even here, like, you know, teaching at Wheaton College, we have many international students. I've had students graduate and their international visa expires because there's a student visa to come to the United States and be a student. And many of them want to stay in the United States. And actually, I like them a lot. I'm like, hey, that'd be great. I think the US would be better off. And I have sometimes I'll, they'll say, do you know of someone who will employ me? Because like, that's their gateway. Their gateway is their employer. Like, you know, do you know of a firm that will employ me and will fill up this work? And But oftentimes, though, for the firm, it can be costly for them. It sometimes be more difficult to hire a foreign-born individual or non-US citizen than is to hire a US citizen or someone who has legal um, capacity or to already work here. So look, can, do you mind walking through we, we use the, this conversation, I think, is be more broad than the United States. I think we're going to try to be gen, uh, general about immigration. But do you mind walking through like a little bit of the history of the United States immigration uh, rules and procedures so we can kind of get a lay of the land, what we currently have, and then we can talk about this radical proposal? I would be happy to, and I'm happy to kick us off. Yeah. But I think that you're probably more the expert on the history of this. Am I? Oh, I think so. I don't, I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, the U.S. said multiple phases of immigration. Mm -hmm. So we've had phases of fairly open borders. Mm -hmm. uh, I, maybe you call us the Ellis Island phase. Uh, then we had phases of origins, quotas uh, for particular places. So, for example, there's a quote on how many people can come from East Asia. And then we moved into the kind of the era we're in now. Uh, by the way, well, I guess a little trivia in the middle of our discussion. Okay. What year was the highest point of foreign-born percent of Americans who are foreign-born? So in other words, what's your highest point of the per capita immigration? Uh, I pre we present this in class regularly, and yeah. I always yeah, forget. Yeah. I always yeah. forget. Um, was it, it? Is it the early 1900s? It's earlier. It's it's the late 1800s. The late 1800s. Yeah, yeah, and then it begins to drop down uh, throughout the 20th century and picks back up again uh, in the 60s and 70s. And actually, we we're kind of approaching about 15 percent or so before COVID hit. Sure. And then immigration has taken a hit with COVID. And there's, I think, good reasons to restrict borders during a global pandemic. Uh, we can talk maybe some other time about, like, at what point do you lose those borders up again? But actually, I think that's, that itself is sort of a little bit of a window into political views on immigration, that right now it's both political parties in the United States, at least, aren't loudly championing opening up borders to have more immigration come in, even post-COVID. But in our current era, though, there's many ways to get into the United States legally. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to... Well, sure. So sure. The, the, I know you know these as well. We, so. we had a shift from uh, thinking about it in economic terms to thinking about it in family family terms. So actually, the, I, yes. I believe the largest way that people are able to get permanent residency in the United States is through family members. If you have a if you are uh, if you have a husband or wife or a child 
or if you're if you are a child of somebody who is in the well, United actually, States. Or, or if it's your child, or for example, if you're an adult child, you're a grandparent, or uh, you can yeah. Family unification is one of the quickest ways to get in the United States, which itself is good and bad. Uh, I think the U.S. values family unification quite a bit morally and normatively. Uh, but the problem that for that though is that countries that already don't have um, a lot large presence in the United States are lower down the list. For example, if you're from Laos, you have a very, very difficult time getting to the United States through that measure. Right, there's a legacy element to this. Absolutely, so this is why, for example, like uh, immigration from Mexico begins to skyrocket starting in the 1970s. Because as there's, if you have a preference for family unification, the more people from a particular location there are here, the more you can jump the front of the line, so to speak. Um, because there is a limit of how much immigrant, immigration the United States is willing to take on an annual basis. Uh, moreover, it's not necessarily about the economy, like you're not targeting a particular skill set or industry of individuals. Um, and frequently, the people who would qualify for family unification, they're not random. They're both not from the poorest countries of the world if you value lower income. Um, and moreover, they already have a connection to the United States, which itself is a, you know, a non-random thing. Um, that's one way. How about through employment? Okay, so the... Most common way is that you need to demonstrate that there is not a viable alternative candidate that, that's born in the United States or that lives in the United States. Yeah. Or has like a green card, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, has legal capacity to work already. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then if you can demonstrate that, then you can apply for uh, to sponsor a, a foreign-born worker. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting because this is a there's a hodgepodge of rules regarding who you can sponsor and what their country of origin is from and etc. So like the processing for approval for for permanent residency for countries like India or China has a much longer line than for many other countries. So it's, it's a very interesting process, like so much yes. so much policy is. And within the employer sponsor category, there's many different types of visas that exist there. That's right. That's a broad category, but it can include, for example, like sports. This is a separate like sub visa for sports mm -hmm. or for artists. Um, and there is a visa that a fan, like a person like you could presumably actually sponsor an employee. Is that right? I'm not sure. Oh, as an au pair? Yeah, sorry, the J-1 visa. Okay. So I think, actually, I want to jump on that one because that's the most similar to what we're going to talk about. Okay, sure. Yeah. Can you, you want to walk through the... Yeah, so, the, I mean, this is basically under a couple... It's, it's less focused on employment and more focused on, like, cultural understanding or being a, a giving somebody from another country an opportunity to experience... Living in the U.S., just like yeah. a lot of other countries, after it's almost like Peace Corps inversed. Inversed, yeah. Let's like, right. bring someone to the United States. They'll live in a, a particular person's home, mm -hmm. and they will hopefully grow to understand and appreciate and support United States culture and values. That's right. So I can hire an au pair on a on a limited basis to be a full time caretaker in, in our home. Yeah, yeah. So okay, that's how we. That's that's our current immigration policy, and by and large, uh, employers the ones who do all the sponsoring. So it's in the hands of employers. So what are some drawbacks to this? Well, I think the biggest drawback identified by uh, the chapter that we we're going to discuss is that the benefits are very highly concentrated. So it's very difficult to navigate this immigration policy framework. And those that have the expertise are going to naturally be the ones who have the competitive advantage in, in, in capturing some of the benefits from, from this program. So if you know that your worker or your potential uh, pool of workers don't have lots of other options or aren't likely to get sponsored by lots of other companies, you're able to benefit from probably a lower wage than would be the case otherwise. So it gives a big benefit to hire both the brightest and best talent from other countries and a benefit of having more negotiation power uh, on, the, on the wage side. 
And then also the migrant themselves. So presumably, they are, if they're leaving for economic reasons, they view there as being more opportunity to uh, provide services that align with their skills mm -hmm. and, and presumably increase their wage. And in a lot of countries, the, these wage gaps can be enormous. So the example in the book was Nepal. And I believe that average wage difference was on the order of a thousand percent. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just want to bring up too, like this whole idea of like employer sponsor um, immigration. It, it, it can actually explain a little bit like the history of the U.S. immigration in the last maybe forty or fifty years. Um, there's been some work on this that basically tries to understand. Well, hey, as I mentioned earlier, if the median citizen doesn't ever really favor increasing immigration policy or you know loosening at the border, then why do we see this change over time of loose, strict, loose, strict with immigration policy? And the argument, by and large, is that that's because employers are going to lobby for more open borders when they have a stronger labor demand. And then when that labor demand um, is no longer strong, they're going to stop lobbying. And so therefore, the restrictions will get tighter. Um, but overall, though, in that, in that, that work basically builds with the assumption that employers are doing all the lobbying. So there's a big challenge to this. I think not only is it that we don't see the gains of immigration be shared broadly across uh, existing society, but a big part of this too is this actually makes it so that, in my opinion, it kind of creates some problems where, I mean, where we live, I think we live in a, in a fairly pro-immigrant community. Like you'll see signs in Phil's yards that you know have various forms of pro-immigration signs. And I think that's great. Um, but but simultaneously, in my mind, I think myself like, yeah, but like you're not like you, like we're, this is a pretty high income area, and so the immigrants are on average less likely to live in this community. This is almost in my mind like a free play, put in quotes, a free play with that sign in the yard. Whereas oftentimes people who maybe uh, have a more opposition to immigration, they're the ones who are on average maybe lower income, right, less, educa less education on average, uh, but also they're the ones who will probably be having immigration. Uh, immigrants be living in their neighborhoods. And so a really cool solution to this mismatch is to decentralize the immigration process, to let immigration actually be selected and chosen and the gains migration to be felt across individuals throughout all the United States. I think what you're saying is that it would be great if the people who are voting in favor of increased immigration were the ones who more directly experienced the effects of it for, for, for good and for bad. That's right, both sides, both sides. Because we haven't gotten to the cultural, which it's hard to measure the cultural elements. It's very, very difficult. But I think broadly speaking, many, many people are worried that uh, when goods go across borders, they're worried about maybe local jobs. Um, but when people cross borders, they're also worried about changing lifestyles, changing norms, changing understandings of what it means to be us, we, from whatever perspective, that's a Korean perspective, a Danish perspective, a Mexican perspective, or an American perspective. And so I think that like there's a mismatch here that oftentimes like when I'm, when I'm going around in Wheaton and I see people having like, pro-immigration signs or yard, I'm like, oh, great, good for you. But I'm also in my head thinking that's a pretty free play for you. It doesn't cost you much. It doesn't cost you much. Exactly. Like you're probably going to you're probably going to have a fairly culturally similar um, or the level of heterogeneity or diversity in your neighborhood is probably going to remain sort of static between now and the next 10 years. So I think what we want to talk about here is this idea, which is pretty radical, out of uh, the Posner Wild book, Radical Markets. Their idea is that we should change the visa procedures, completely change it, and make it so that instead of the employers being the ones who select immigrants, now it's individuals do. So people like you and me. 
That's right. So yeah. why don't you, uh, I think it's time to unveil the idea. Is it? Okay. I think, well, I've talked long enough. Oh, man. Okay. So the idea is called VIP, which I am blanking on what the acronym stands for. Can you mind? Visas between individuals. Individual persons. Yeah. Uh, oh, visas between individual persons. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I would just say visas between individuals. Anyway, they call but it VIP. But VIP sounds awesome. VIP sounds awesome. I, <laughs> but when I, when I tweet other people, I'm always like, it's just pieces between individual people. Yeah. So the idea is that any ordinary person could sponsor a migrant worker. So basically, every individual in the U.S. receives an additional right. And that right is to welcome some migrant worker from some other country. And there's not a specified period of time. So it's not like you get to do it for three years and then it's up. It's like you can do it indefinitely. And as long as it works out, you can continue the relationship. If it doesn't work out, then there's ways to 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 rotate that relationship. You can indefinitely without with that single immigrant. With that with one, so simultaneous, yeah. you can only have one person at a time. That's right. So I, the so, length yeah. is an unspecified. So either right as a U.S. citizen, either right to always sponsor an immigrant. And it could and be it a could beautiful be a, thing. Yeah, it could be the same immigrant, or it could be immigrants, but one at a time. That's right. Right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So it could be something where you like, I want to commit to this person for life. Yep. And it, or it could be, I want to commit to sponsoring this person for a year and we'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, their prescribed method has a list of, of restrictions. So that is that the sponsor has to provide basic health insurance for the migrant. Mm-hmm. So I am responsible for my migrant's access to health care. Um, and so basically, the, there's no longer a free play. Like if I really want to increase migration, I have the capacity to do so. But I'm also on the hook for any of the the potential negatives. Second, the sponsor is financially responsible if the migrant can't find work or if they commit crimes or if they disappear. So this isn't, this, I think this is brilliant. It creates an incredibly large incentive for me to do a careful job of screening potential migrants, which I think that this is an important step of the process and I have specific local knowledge. So I might have like lived in another country and know specific people in another country who are very well qualified to, to work in a number of jobs close to where I currently live in the United States. And so I might know them very well and I might be willing to back them in a way that no government worker could ever have the experience to do this on a large scale, to know specific individuals, their backgrounds, and their potential like goodness of fit in, the, in a local community. Um, that said, I'm responsible, I'm on the hook if they commit a crime or if they run away or if they uh, are not finding work. Third, the migrant doesn't benefit from the local program, so this is, there's a lot of concern or a lot of blocking of increasing immigration is because of the concern that they're a drain on public resources. Now, there's a lot of conflicting evidence of whether they are or they're not. And I don't really want to get into the weeds on that, but they're basically like, let's kick this to the side. The, the sponsor is the one responsible for the well-being of the migrant. Now, the migrant has recourse. And a lot of times we like to compare these things to like the ideal world. But right now, a lot of migrants in the U.S. who didn't get there through the normal means are there illegally with no legal recourse. Yeah. Like, it is very easy to take advantage of somebody right. who's not allowed to report issues. Yeah. These migrants... Mean, meaning if you come in undocumented. If you come in undocumented. So you don't come in through what we've been speaking about earlier, the existing employer-based sponsor programs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So if you, in this, under mm-hmm. this system, there's, a, there's more than 300 million people who could sponsor you. That's right. Potentially. Yeah. You're sponsored under a specific relationship that is legally recognized. So even though you don't have access to welfare programs, you do have access to legal recourse. And then fourth, uh, they say that in order for this to work, there needs to be a stronger immigration enforcement mechanism. So we need to be more strict on not allowing undocumented immigrants to enter. 
but there is a far greater capacity for legal immigration. So this reduces the pressure in a different way. Instead of being like, we need to make sure we enforce the border through like every means necessary, we say there's this relatively easy legal method for you to come across the border, but we're going to be much stricter on, on um, methods of entering the country that do not uh, uh, adhere to this. Yeah, so you can easily uh, in this new system simply say like, all right, now we're going to be really strict on an employer who is caught uh, employing an, an individual worker who does not have a legal, legal right to work here. And there's right. not really an excuse for it anymore. So right now, basically, yeah. I mean, in my opinion, the U.S. depends heavily on <laughs> undocumented yes. workforce. Yeah. But there's not any yeah. political will to like figure this out That's or right. make it legal. That's right. The enforcement, the enforcement right now of undocumented workers is a function of like how much the economy needs labor. And we and we need that labor. That's so like right. the yes. the country's not going to kick those workers out, but they don't have legal resources. If they're getting like it's a terrible system, right? Yeah. Now. Yeah. I think we all agree that reform would be great. So all right, to be clear, this new proposal basically says, hey, every single person who already legally lives in the United States, we'll, we'll call them citizens for, for the simplicity. Every U.S. citizen has the right, sorry, every adult, I should say. I, mean, I don't think kids have the right to do this. But every adult U.S. citizen has the right to sponsor an immigrant if they choose to. Mm -hmm. They may. They may mm -hmm. or may not. They can do it out of the goodness of their own heart. They can say, hey, you know, so not from now on, if I see someone who has a sign of a yard and we did that says, I support immigration, if we had this new policy, I could look at them and go, that's awesome. So, why don't you do it? You know, yeah, why don't you do it? <laughs> they're like, well, they can go, okay, clearly you don't actually buy it that much because you're not doing it. And you could, because right now they could say, well, I would love to, I just can't, which is true. You can't. But if this new system, actually you can. You can say, all right, so we can do it maybe for free. But I think that they propose, uh, Weil and Posner, they basically think that we probably don't have that many altruists in our society, which I would agree with them. And hopefully we do. I, well, we might. I mean, we might have like 2 million or 5 million people who say, hey, I'll sponsor you for free. But actually, even if we don't, it'll still be okay because you can create a market for that. That's right. You can basically say, a person could say, I'm willing to sponsor you for $10,000. And and here's the key idea is that there are massive gains to be had through migration. There are some workers who could see a huge increase to their average income per year generated from their migration process. Yes, that's right. So, so if, if you say, for example, all of a sudden move to the United States and you get a good, but you know, like a low skill job that maybe pays $20 an hour, you might be now making $40,000 per year. And so if someone says, I would like to, I, I will let, I'll sponsor you for that $40,000 per year job. I mean, I'd be the individual and I'll sponsor you, but I want, but you have to pay me $10,000. The immigrant can choose to do that. If they want to do that, that means they pay $10,000 a sponsor, but they get to pocket $30,000. And maybe they send some of that back home, right? That's that's the idea. That's right. And for many people, this represents like a thousand percent, a significant increase over Huge. what they were earning that's previously. Right. So yes. if the option is the option doesn't exist, or you get paid less than you're earning in the U.S., but far more than you were earning in the country of origin, it's a much more interesting. It's a much more interesting conversation. And this proposal is interesting because it could dramatically increase the capacity to welcome foreign-born. Yeah. And so that, this bid, by the way, so let's do the bidding right now. Um, so I could go on, say, for example, we, this is this is implemented. I myself could go on to a website. We'll call it isponsor.com. Okay. I'd go to isponsor.com and I could potentially look at all the various immigrant profiles out there from country of origin, uh, gender, maybe age. And I can look at what they're willing to pay. Mm -hmm. And then I could potentially sort through these individuals and maybe I could even like select three or four of them, interview them if I wanted to. And then I could do a match and say, all right, here's the contract. Like I will sponsor you for uh, the first interval of six months for this, this price. You get free healthcare. We get healthcare through my sponsoring you. 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to house you as well. I have an extra room. Here come my room. This is how it's going to work out. So you have the legal right to be in Wheaton, Illinois, in my extra room, basic healthcare covered. Does that basically sound good? Yeah, and I think that, that there's a big initial, there's a, several initial concerns. So let's start talking through some of them. Because I think we've both come around to being fans of this idea, even though initially we might have been like, ugh, this well, seems... There's also many open open questions too. There's a lot of open questions. So let's, yeah. let's, so let's talk about some of the concerns yeah. that I think are legitimate and important to talk through. Yeah. So the first one is abuse. Is like, how do we know that these sponsors are not going to take advantage of the foreign-born workers? I mean, it, that, that is the most obvious concern everyone has. Mm -hmm. like whenever I've mentioned this to anybody, almost everyone has this intuitive, just complete and total um, revulsion this program because they just assume that there's going to be just a huge amount of abuse. So can I give, I just feel like this is the most, as an economist, this is where like my, my econ sense just like blares its horn. <laughs> okay, go ahead. And basically the idea is that there, you have a million outside options. So like the way for somebody to abuse you is when you most, like I think the most likely scenario for abuse is when you don't feel like you have any other option or where you don't, you aren't aware of other options. Like for example, the current undocumented worker situation. That's right. So like, you know of one potential relationship that was told to you by maybe a cousin as an opportunity and you're there and you're there illegally. You don't know what would happen if you reported what was going on. Now under this VIP program, there is a literal millions of other people who could potentially be your sponsor. So if a relationship doesn't work or you feel like you're being taken advantage of, you could say, hey, look, you're giving me, you're allowing, you're requiring that I pay you $10,000 a year. But I've demonstrated through two years of working for you that I am a reliable yeah. uh, and upstanding worker in this country. I have three offers on the table for me to come work for $8,000 a year. I've liked our relationship. Like, would you be willing to, to do it for, for less? Um, if someone's abusing me, I have legal recourse to say, hey, this person is taking advantage of me. Now there is, of course, concerns about training and understanding the system. But compared to the current de facto system where there's a large number of undocumented immigrants who don't have the ability to talk to somebody without fear of repercussions, this is a ma massive improvement. Yeah, Ashley, let's, let's be clear too. So let's go, let's go through like a particular type of abuse that many people are worried about. That'd be like a physical abuse. Okay. Like an actual, like, I'm going to take advantage of you. I'm going to physically assault you, right? Um, <clears throat> this type of abuse, of course, we're, we're kind of creating a, a weak argument here because we're comparing to undocumented. Sure. But for the purpose of right now, let's do that. If in the current undocumented situation, you are a migrant and your employer who's employing you illegally abuses you, uh, who do report? Who do report to? Because actually now you, now you face what's called a double bind. Do you either not report and continue to suffer physical harm or mental trauma, or do you report and risk deportation? So this is a double bind that exists, the person is undocumented. Whereas with this new system, uh, you don't have that double bind. You report and the problem, you report and presumably that the person abusing you faces criminal prosecution, right? It is illegal to uh, it, 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 it is illegal to do assault, right? You can't do that. That's and right. so now you face the problem. Now you face reporting, and then you could have a system, obviously, in which if you lost your sponsor because they are now um, convicted of criminal charges, you could easily create a system in which you don't face deportation. Right. That's right. You, you, can, can, you could find another, there would be like a transition program to find another sponsor. That's right. You could ease up a transition program. It's like, all right, this is how much time you have. Almost like an unemployment insurance kind of program. Like sort of in between, right? So, but even then, I mean, going further, like, so now people are listening, they're thinking, well, okay, you keep comparing to undocumented, but in my world, I want to have no undocumented. Okay, well, sure. But we're also going to recognize like political constraints that in the current world we have right now, we basically have two types of migrants for the most part. 
We have those who are legally sponsored through employers, and we have those who are undocumented. And so that's kind of where we have, I would say too, furthermore, that like, I don't know why an individual household is more likely to abuse than a employer of 50 employees. It's unclear to me why the exist, but differently. It's unclear to me why people who are afraid of abuse in this new proposed system are not worried about abuse with an employer, because I feel like the risks are probably similar, right? Maybe in in a house where there's not, I can I can I can uh, relate to the concern in a, in a house where there might be more privacy, where there might be more ability to to carry out. Yes, okay, totally. So in the price of the house, you might have a, a capacity to get away with it, so to speak. But with the employer situation, maybe it's not in the household, but you have monopoly power now. So the employer situation with the current way, way, way is now, like you have a reporting situation. Sure, they're not undocumented, but you are their only link <laughs> to like legal status in the United States. And so they report you, yeah, like you could be criminally prosecuted, but simultaneously they have a desire to not report you. I mean, there's examples in the United States of, I mean, slavery occurs in the United States. You know, thankfully not that high, but it still occurs in the United States. And much of the slavery oftentimes is a, well, I'll do slavery for foreign born. The slavery oftentimes is someone who comes to the United States on a legal visa and that employer either abuses them right away or they allow the visa to expire. And they tell them things like, if anyone finds out they're here undocumented, horrible things are gonna to happen to you. Uh, there's a case, for example, of a hotel chain in Kansas and they were hiring um, many Malaysian uh, women who were cleaning the hotel for them. Uh, and it was all through some Kurdistani like <laughs> immigrant network of visa. Uh, and all these women, their visas expired and the local hotel owner was taking advantage of them by paying them no wages and having all of them sleep in one hotel room together. Uh, and they all were terrified to report because they thought, if I report, I'm going to possibly even go to prison. So, so I think the, the conclusion is not that this is not a potential issue, and it's something we should be definitely concerned about. It likely There likely will be cases of abuse. But oh, compared- I can't imagine. I mean, I, I, if you have 10 million, 10 million sponsors, I can't imagine there, would, there wouldn't be any abuse, right? Right. But compared to the existing, it is. Yeah. it seems far better on almost any observable dimension. So there are more outside options. Your employer is now your only link to being able to remain in your current work situation or in your current geographic location. Like yeah. now there's many, any other person could potentially sponsor you. If you've demonstrated your ability to maintain a job and work hard, like that, that record is, is already existent. Yeah. Um, so you have a better outside option. Second, you have legal recourse. You can report yourself without fear of being, you can report what is happening without fear of being deported. Um, and third, I think we, I think what you mentioned is important to mention again, is that we have an existing program that is very similar on this level. The au pair program is also subject to the roughly the same system. And we don't seem to be terribly concerned about the potential for abuse, even though it exists. That's right. So we should yep. be concerned about the potential for abuse, but au pairs and families match. And if you, if you like reveal yourself to be a bad person, uh, presumably the screening process works both ways. Like if I only have one option to come to the States, I'm going to take it no matter what, if I, if I'm in a desperate economic situation. But if I have a, if I have 300 potential sponsors that live within hundred miles of each other, then like, I'm going to look at how their experience has been, or if there's any other information about these people to see, you know, is this person somebody that I'd like to Oh yeah, have a significant relationship with. Yeah, you could totally see too, like affect a, like a, like a rating system of like, hey, this person is an experienced sponsor. They've already had three um, immigrants they've sponsored, 
and if the score is really high on all three of those people who give you a good score back, you can maybe charge a higher rate because now an immigrant says, I want to live with you. And I think that's a thing. So three prior sponsors, it sounds like maybe that's failed attempts. I think another thing we should emphasize that I don't think we've mentioned so far is that most people who work uh, in a foreign country, they don't, most people don't want to live there forever. Like most people love their country of origin. Like maybe for a time they need to make a significant, a hugely significant sacrifice to live in a foreign uh, culture, a foreign, uh, with foreign language and everything and, and navigate this very different system. And they're willing to do that to give their children a better chance to improve their opportunities, et cetera. But a lot of people, if they had the opportunity to freely come and go, would not want to stay permanently. Yeah. Do not want to stay permanently. And I think also this, this proposal of VIP, this immigration, decentralized immigration, pathways to citizenship are still available. But the, but the current pathways to becoming a US citizen, they're not gonna change, the same thing. But you're totally right, Enoch. The, the typical American, I think, has this view that immigration is either refugee or a permanent, I'm gonna be an American, I'm 100% moving there for life, my kids will be here, my great grandkids, et cetera, et cetera. And we completely ignore what are called temporary migrant migrants. People come for two years and they're like, I'm coming to make money to send back home and I wanna go back home, I wanna start a business. And ironically, you can make the system so hard that it's almost impossible to like get in. Why would you go back home? You make it much more yes. challenging to make the decision to go back. That's right, because because you because you finally got your foot in the foot in. Why would you ever go back? Whereas this sponsor program, you could presumably go. Yeah, I'll go back to the United States maybe if I want to in five years. All right, let's. Let, I, I want to bring up another open-ended question. The question is this. Okay, great great proposal. Realistically, how many American citizens are actually going to sponsor? I think that it's kind of something that's learned over time. So I think there'll be there'll be some people who are like, this is really important. And they might do it for a virtuous means or because they believe in this cause, et cetera. Uh, other people might say, look, we're in a rough spot. Like, I just I just got laid off. Maybe this is something we should consider doing. Um, and, and they're more risk takers. But once you see people start to sponsor, and hopefully some of these, like, there's a proximity uh, element that is beautiful to this too. So like you're sponsoring a specific individual. It's not like this massively large program. You're going to get to know them. They'll, they're hopefully going to become part of your life and you'll become part of their life. And, uh, and I think that as that happens and as there's successful examples of this happening, um, I think that it could naturally spread. Okay. Feet to the fire. If you had to guess if VIP was in, implemented this year in the United States, five years from now, so 2028, how many individual sponsors would there be? I mean, I have no idea, but I, I know, of course, I, of course, I would, I would guess that it would be mm, three million, which is like one percent of the population, but that's more than one percent of the families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you think? Okay. So because because this is a question that I remember one time I was talking about this, and one of my friends said, "Oh, we, we, it would reduce immigration." Why, why is that? Like, like, who in the world wants to have someone? live with them like in their house well you don't have to have them live with them you, you just don't. work out the arrangement that's right but 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 let's presume but, but, but or in general like who wants to be who wants to deal with all of that work all that hassle for you know eight thousand or six thousand dollars and i kind of smiled and i laughed i was like i think you're around high income individuals <laughs> because oh i do think though honestly i would not be surprised at all though if the patterns like the actual like household patterns of sponsors is very, I mean, I actually don't think there'd be a lot of altruistic sponsors. Maybe, I mean, yes, there'd be some, but I actually don't think there'd be very many. I think most people are gonna be doing it for extra income. Um, and I do think that therefore that those sponsors would be disproportionately probably uh, in the middle class to working class category. 
Well, there's also there's also a market. This is also becomes a market. So there's also like, if there's very few people willing to sponsor, and there are some extremely talented people who, for whatever idiosyncratic reasons, really want to work in the United States, they're willing to pay a lot in order to have that opportunity. And you could wait and do the lottery and take a very long time, or you could bypass that whole system and go with a the sponsor. They probably would be willing to outbid one another for these positions. That's right. So, so you're saying if, if the sponsors are too few, the, the price, price will, will go up. That's right. I, I would agree with that. And I think that like, I mean, I mean I, I, the people hang out would also go, that makes sense. The question though is effectively, what is the threshold for the average American to be responsible for another person? Uh, I actually think it's pretty low. Like, meaning I think that like the income level, the amount of income gains don't be that high. But realistically, I think it probably is a really good chance that where I live, the people with the signs, the signs in their yard aren't going to sponsor. Because for them, the extra income, because the market will probably be like, I don't know, maybe $10,000 or $8,000 to sponsor. It won't be worth it to them. Um, but this is actually, I think the strength of the program is this is a way to potentially soften public attitudes toward immigration. Among um, the populations that have historically yeah, been most. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Because all of a sudden now if lower income or lower educated groups of individuals actually literally benefit economically dollars from immigration, first off, it's their self-interest to support sponsoring. But also, this might be a little optimistic because the authors have this glowing view of intercultural engagement and understanding and empathy. I don't think so. They tell two stories. One's positive and one's not so positive. That's true. That's true. Uh, I think there probably be, maybe, might be some intercultural understanding, but I think overall, though, just the gains of immigration being more dispersed across the uh, population already here, it's a huge win. And for me, that's why I actually like, I like the idea a lot because I, I mean, I, I say this frequently that I think immigration is a great, great part of the economy. Um, I want more immigration. And so I think this is a way to actually get more immigration and do it through a politically feasible means. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I'm very much, I, I'd be in favor of at least trying it out, which brings yes. us to something else we want to talk about. Although, okay, so there's, there's other concerns. Yeah. I would love to spend like, an hour on all of well, them. Well, bring, bring up before we go to the next thing. Go to, what, go to what, the what's, your big, what's your other biggest concern? Well, the, so I think I've hashed through most of these concerns and I feel okay with them. Yeah. But I, I, they, it gets often brought up. So what about the screening process? Like how are people going to be capable, who've never screened anyone in their life, to screen a potential uh, foreign-born worker? And, like, and what are they screening for? Well, they're going to be responsible for criminal activity, for um, trying to run away, or for... Uh, so the, the foreign-born worker is always allowed to return to their country of origin. What I mean is like run away, but remain within the within the country of destination. Yeah, they become undocumented. That's right. Yeah. Uh, or so criminal activity, or not being able to find a job. Yeah. So like, how am I as like Joe Schmo who doesn't know anything about this program? How am I going to be uh, competent enough to run my own screening process and find a foreign-born worker? That seems like a very valid concern. Yeah. So what's your response? So the, the response is that you won't be that person. Almost every time that there's been programs like, so like with the au pair program, how do I find a competent uh, nanny or person who wants to live in the United States? Um, there's lots of services that have arisen to fill this gap. Yeah. So there's going to be services who specialize in specific countries in, in understanding specific uh, nuances and, and maybe ways that like people particularly land well in the middle of Iowa or in, in Wheaton, near, near the city of Wheaton. Uh, and they're going to be able to screen for me, and then I'll be able to rely on their ratings or their history of successful screening to say, yeah, I feel like they're competent enough to navigate this. 
and then I am going to be personally invested. Like this is a pretty in, enormous investment uh, and it's going to be a long-term relationship. So like I probably will do conversation. We will have conversations. We'll see if we match well, but I could imagine something kind of like dating websites, but for working relationships. Yeah, absolutely. To arise. <clears throat> I, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I don't know why we wouldn't have that kind of service arise. As soon as go, I mean, first off, if we all of a sudden do this program and the services do not arise, I feel like it's a very easy business venture <laughs> to get involved in. Yeah. So I, I think it would be, be there. Well, how about this critique then before we move on? Yeah. Are there certain things though that we should be paying money for? This is like a moral oh, sure, sure. critique. And I think it's a good critique. The critique that I think moves me the most of like, does this dehumanize someone that like that I am bidding to sponsor someone that I am saying, yes, I will sell access to work in my country. Like, shouldn't these things be for free? So I think that the best way for us to interact with one another is motivated by love. And I think it is beautifully done at the family level, at the community level. But I also think that hum humanity has like for whatever reason, a limitation to the extent to which we're able to extend costly, or at least the majority of humanity extends costly uh, service to people they've never met before. So if there was enough of this to happen through motivated by love and the goodness of people of willing to say, hey, like you could significantly improve your life if all I do is open up a bedroom for you, that would be way better. And I think that there's huge gains from that. Like I think you will find joy from serving humanity without an economic channel of gain. Well, let me ask, okay, let me ask this question. And of course, but I don't think it's going to happen enough. That's well, I'm answer. not a philosopher. Uh, to the best of my understanding, though, of just price and Aquinas, of course, he's not talking about immigration. He's talking about retail and um, selling something. But I think maybe I could extend to this. Do you think it's problematic to make a profit off of this? So I'm actually going to ask you personally, like you personally, um, if, if you decided to sponsor an immigrant who's coming to the United States to make money, I, knowing you, knowing who you are, you probably are like, you're going to be blinded to how much money you're making. So for example, you're going to be like, well, this is, I'm, I, this is how much I'm going to charge you regardless of what job you find. Um, but let's imagine for you to host an extra person. And so you do it in your, in your home. You find healthcare. You also anticipate like the square footage of host that person. And um, you also anticipate uh, utility costs and things that you've reasonably calculated in. Let's say that you think that's going to actually cost you monetarily $3,000 a year or to sponsor this person. Would you charge more than $3,000? Like personally? Would you profit? So co cost is, a, I mean, profit and cost are like very, very tricky terms. Yeah. So like, what is my current hourly wage? And should, so if I charge my hourly wage for the amount of time I presume I'm going to invest in the relationship and trying to assist and help, we could get beyond, I mean, I could easily see it going beyond $10,000. Of course, like I also have an, I also would love to see people's lives improved through opportunities like these. Yeah. And so I'm willing to do it partially on volunteer time. Yeah. Um, would you, would you feel, let's go further. Would you feel like, okay, let's imagine that you though calculate you're not only wage, but your other, your other known costs would be around $3,000 a year. But you know, the going rate for the market, especially for a household like yours in a town that you live in with the type of rating that you maybe would have already that you could reasonably get off the market $13,000 and the, therefore you get profit $10,000 a year. Do you feel more okay with, with profiting $10,000 per year off of sponsoring a, a human? Uh, okay, you're asking me publicly, so it's a little- Yeah, I am, I am. It's interesting. Well, but I mean, I mean, but this is a question I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people I think, intuitively I think feel this. Okay, so I actually yeah. feel fine with it. Yeah. Um, 
I think that we are called to like dramatic demonstrations of sacrificial love and that that's a lot of what makes life worth living. In this dimension, I think that in the context we're talking about, we're not talking about refugees who are like fleeing for their lives no, in an not. involuntary manner. Yep. We're talking about people, there, there is a large number of people who are uh, seeking this benefit. There's, there's, and I have the ability to help a very, very, very minor portion of them and to arbitrarily give a gift of like, which is a monetary gift essentially of $10,000 to one of them seems pretty random and arbitrary. Like there's probably people who could use that $10,000 far, far more than that specific now, individual. I'll make it very clear. You flip this very, very, very um, quickly. But for a lot of people who aren't used to thinking in um, in pure uh, economic terms like you, like you just did, you just all of a sudden transfer into a $10,000. You, you, you all of a sudden started talking about this with a $10,000 gift transfer. Can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, yeah. So if the, if the going rate, <laughs> if they would have had to go with anybody else, if I chose not to participate in this program, uh, okay, so presumably they're willing to pay $13,000. Yes. Or they could find another option for $13,000 if I didn't exist. That's right. So by me existing and offering them a $3,000 rate, essentially they're getting a $10,000 increase in income. Now that's one person who's arbitrarily getting that $10,000 increase in income. And that person may, I, mean, I don't know their situation, this is a hypothetical, but there's good reason to believe that this person is probably in a better off situation than many, many other people on the planet. Because to put it differently, you're saying the opportunity cost effectively of, 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 of giving a discount is that you couldn't, for example, charge the full $13,000. And then if you if you morally constrained yourself to not profit, you could potentially take that $10,000 profit and then with discretion and discernment. Give it to people who, are, who needed it even more. Exactly. Maybe food banks or homeless shelters or something like that. You can say, hey, this $10,000 transfer is more necessary here. That's a very much, by the way, love it, because you and I both think, I think, in a very similar way. But to a lot of non-economics-oriented people, they're like, what are you doing? Like, everything just being turned into just, like, fungibility and moving numbers around and affected altruism. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of people, though, that just feel uncomfortable with profiting off of sponsoring immigrant. And I don't want to take that away from people either. Like, I don't know... I think that a lot of the best parts of life is doing these non-strategic, arbitrary things for specific people that you yeah, love. Totally. Uh, that don't necessarily actually, make. Actually, I fully agree with you because, like, sense. Cause it, yeah, exactly. Because if you take your logic to its full extreme, you would never, uh, for example, pay or donate money to sponsor one um, seeing eye dog for one person with a with, with blindness because because right. you're, like, you're like it's not very effective. It's not very like efficient to spend all that money on one person. I want to tell you something that moves me, and maybe this is a good ending point, and it's, we never got to welcome core. So there's actually a, we should talk about it briefly, at least for a couple minutes. Let's, let's take a few minutes to this. Actually, it, it, it is fascinating. And by the way, we, everyone needs to know this, that the reason why I have this conversation now is because Enoch and I both have loved talking talk about immigration for quite some time. And we both have been aware of this, uh, visas between individuals for quite some time. And the US State Department has effectively implemented a version of this, but not for profit. But they've invent they've, they've put a version for, of this for refugees, and I think it's super exciting. So Enoch, take it away. Yeah. So this is this program is not with the idea of getting money. So it's actually advantaging from another part, which is local information. So um, it's a decentralized process for increasing the cap on the number of refugees. So, so let's first of all walk off here. Wait, wait, sorry, let's first explain this. The U.S. has an existing cap of the number of refugees we admit per year. A refugee is a person who is an involuntary migrant who is outside the U.S. borders and is asking to be permanently placed in the United States. See, for example, an Afghan re refugee or Ukrainian refugee. These are classic examples. 
The U.S. has a current cap of how many we let in. And Welcome Corps is a State Department having a brand new initiative that allows that cap to be exceeded if individuals sponsor. And so here's the idea is collectively, there might be a pretty big lift to try to convince the majority of people to increase the refugee cap. Yeah. But there's millions of people within the United States who would like to see the number of refugees in the U.S. increase. What if, we, what if those people took on costly action in order to allow that to happen? So what the Welcome Corps allows is for a group of five or more people all over the age of 18 to form their own um, uh, welcoming... Welcome Corps. Welcome Corps, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Their, um, their, their own little pod. Private, it's called a private, a private welcome group. They have an acronym yeah. for it, I don't remember what it is. Um, it cannot be a corporation, but it can be supported by a corporation. The group has to raise $2,375 per refugee Part of that can be in in-kind donations. So including children? It, per person. So, so if it's right. a family of five, you'd have to raise that times five. Yeah. Um, and then you agree to pro, to find a place for that person to live. You're not going to pay for the housing, but you will furnish it up front. So some of that 2000 some per person is used to furnish the housing. You agree to help them to find employment. You agree to meet them at the airport um, uh, and, and provide other certain things like connect them with ESL classes, perhaps teach them to use public transport. If it doesn't exist in your area, to get, help them get a driver's license, help them find jobs or job training, help connect to childcare. So all these things. So you're gonna provide a lot of services. You also help them do things like get on Medicaid or uh, WIC or various different programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Preschool maybe potentially. But the goal is not to have them be dependent on you. The goal is to get them to a point of independence and the time frame is 90 days. So your official commitment lasts 90 days. Of course, and I think this is beautiful. The, the website says that the most important action you're going to do is to provide a, a relationship, a friend, a point of contact, a welcoming point of contact in, in this new country when they're fleeing their home for whatever reason, so, which I think is a beautiful vision. So potentially, but, and this is altruistic, you're not making money off this. You're not making money off you got, Because you're literally spending money. You you're, have to, you're also not allowed to try to convert the person. So it, like, there's a lot of ways yeah. that people have historically wanted to welcome groups in this Me, is, Meaning like a Christian organization can't be used as to convert. That's right. That's what you're referring to, to convert to Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, but potentially though, you could form a group of, a welcome group with like five, five individuals and then every 90 days do a new group. That's every right. 90 days, so if, so if you were passionate about increasing refugee placements in the United States, you could sponsor a family of six every 90 days. That's right, so it's time to put your money where your mouth is. Actually, honestly, this is why I love it because they, when I see these signs go zero, which by the way, I wanna make it very clear, I love these signs. Like. I, I mean, I, I want every single student that I teach to be pro-refugee and asylee. You know, be pro, like, you know, when someone's an involuntary migrant, my goodness, their hearts be moved. So I want to get very clear. I love these signs. But one thing I love about Welcome Corps is I can be like, okay, great. Now you can do something about it. Yeah, are you part of, are you part of a welcome group? And they're like, well, no, I, I know, not yet, I don't have time. Like, they'd be like, so why have a sign in the yard? What are you doing here? You know, like, let's go, let's, let's, get, let's, let's get moving. So Enoch, you, so prepare for this conversation, I told you at Welcome Corps, just think like last week, right? Yeah, a week ago. Yeah, a week ago, that's it. Like seven days ago, you didn't know it existed. And actually most people, I, I don't think know, I think the State Department has done a terrible job marketing this. I talked to my father about it. He got all excited in rural Ohio. Um, and I told my students about it. Uh, after Actually, students have already taught the, the subject of decentralized or VIP immigration. I've been like, hey, guess what, everybody? We're seeing this move. So you read about it, Enoch. How have you responded since you read about it? Uh, so we, we I work out with this group of guys called F3. It's about time you introduce F3. Oh to man, it's a big part. So <laughs> fitness, faith, and fellowship. Yeah. We get together every morning at 5.30 and do a crazy workout. Uh, but it's more than that. There's also a lot of get togethers throughout the week. We try to we try to do things that contribute back to the community. 
And so I raised this idea of the welcome cord of the group, and there's a lot of interest. So we've started discussing how we can actually make make our own welcome cord. Yeah, which, which is great. It's so, very exciting. But you know, it's funny though. So this was announced, I believe, January of this year. Um, and as soon as March, I saw my first public story, I think published in USA Today, of outrage because someone was caught uh, on Facebook mark like advertising a welcome course slot to a refugee saying for for income for income saying i will sponsor my welcome core my welcome group whatever it's called my welcome group will sponsor you if you pay whatever price like say eight thousand dollars something something exceeding the 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 price that costs your group Mm -hmm. uh and people are outraged by this utterly outraged how do you feel about it i think it's i think that even though i understand the sentiment I think they're probably hurting the people who are outraged are probably hurting refugees far more than the person who's offering to do it for money because basically the person who's offering to do it for money is increasing this is increasing the cap over the existing amount that are welcome and also make it clear too you're not determining if someone qualifies as a refugee the u.s government already is mm-hmm. correct right. mm-hmm. so this is, it makes this very very clear in other words a person from a country so say so for example uh, a person from belarus or and that's in your country of romania wanted just to pay the money to be uh to to hop in the, re- the walking core they can't because they don't already have refugee status correct that's right okay so already we already have a very particular population of individuals the u.s government has already determined qualify for refugee status so do you have a problem if i form a welcome group and i sell the price for five thousand dollars and i take the difference yeah i think that if you if if you didn't exist that person presumably wouldn't have an alternative option so like, is it better to pay for that person to be able to have the option to pay $5,000? Hopefully there's a whole lot of people who do it for free. Yeah. But is it better to have the option for $5,000 or to be stuck in this ter- presumably terrible situation? What if I, I think many people can't afford the $5,000 up front. Many mm-hmm. people have flood their homes, have nothing. Some people can. Like mm-hmm. some refugees, they bring their gold with them or whatever they have with them. But many can't. Mm-hmm. Would you have a problem if I did a debt form of this? I said... Uh, I'm willing to sponsor you, and you owe me $5,000 over a three-year period with a specific interest rate? I mean, as long as there's a regulated debt contract. Okay. I don't think I would. I mean, I think that's actually better. It, it opens the opportunity to... But could you take advantage of someone's extreme fears? So fears. I would hope that there would be legislation that went into well, not maybe cap, like payday in, loans or the Yeah, we're not, we're not charged like 80% interest rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, predatory lending. Because to be honest, like, actually, when I first read that article about the, the person advertising that spot, well, well, just like VIP. And so I've already um, sort of conditioned my brain to thinking about the idea of selling a visa spot for being not that problematic. But then I thought, thought, I thought further about it. And because this is unlike an economic migrant, it's a person who, with their family, is just desperate. Mm-hmm. Just utterly desperate to find permanent placement. I mean... The accounts you read, you know, about refugee camps, they can be quite horrific. Yeah. And some people are caught in refugee camps for three years. Yeah. Uh, that'd, that'd be terrible. And so I could totally see a really nasty cycle developing on predatory lending. That to me is actually the fear. Yeah. Yeah. Because of like, I mean, I think I myself would potentially uh, sign a contract that's very predatory, meaning the interest rates are extremely high in order to get my family to the United States. And there's another interesting point. So I was talking to my wife about this and yeah. she was raising, we did a, a welcome group, but through one of these organizations that like world relief that welcomes historically has been, have been the groups to welcome and they're going to continue to welcome under the cap. And then this increases the cap. That's right. If those don't know, um, the United States currently when refugee comes, they all have a certain amount of dollars allocated to them, federal dollars 
for placement resettlement. And I think right now there's seven resettlement organizations in the United States that partner with the, United States, with the U.S. government. In our local area, the, the one is called World Relief. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, keep going, sorry. So, so we went through that process and it was incredibly helpful and they had a lot of expertise that had obviously been accumulated through mm-hmm. repeatedly doing this. And she said, you know, if we didn't have that careful training and kind of hand-holding and like, what's our next step? What do we do in this situation? She would have both felt unequipped and if we had gone through with it, been less service to the refugee than we would have been otherwise. And she said, you know, these places have capacity. Historically, we've welcomed more refugees. Like, why don't we continue to leverage them and just say, like, partner with one of these groups that are already welcoming refugees? She said, like, why do this? Because you're going to get some people who are really invested, who spend a lot of time researching and trying to understand. You're going to get other people who are, like, motive. I mean, because there's no, presumably there's not money to be gained, hopefully it is people who deeply care about the welfare of the the refugee. Yeah, actually, all right, right now, when you look at uh, Towns America, the highest refugee placement per capita, um, there's a small town outside of Atlanta, well, far outside, in Georgia. Uh, there's a small town uh, near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, Minneapolis area, actually our area. But one thing they have in common are typically these areas that have very high refugee placements per capita, have very high religiosity um, scores. Mm-hmm. And because already with the existing structure, like the World Relief or Bethany Christian Services, these different groups that do the federal placement they would just utterly suffer if they didn't already have a huge team of volunteers. I mean, for example, where, where my kids go to preschool, um, every one of my kids who go to preschool has uh, has had in their class at least two refugees, or maybe one or two refugees, who uh, local individuals are paying uh, for their tuition dollars, not the refugee organization, but local individuals are paying for their, their tuition dollars to give them education. And I think it's great. So there already is this really beautiful core of philanthropy, service, volunteering that's already existing there. So I think Welcome Corps is just a natural extension of that. I'm very excited to see how it how it plays out. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's cool that it's an actual thing. It's not just a hypothetical idea, which is what we normally talk about. Absolutely. We saw the first ever implementation of it, so I'm very excited about it. Well, it's been a great conversation. I think it's probably about time we wrap up. Definitely, yeah. Definitely. So thank you so much for uh, talking about immigration with me, Enoch. Thank you, Tim. It's been very fun. It was exciting. All right. Talk to you all next time. Talk to you next week. 